Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good morning. I am not Gloria Duffy. (laughs) My name is Dennis Collins, uh, and I am a board member at uh, this illustrious institution, but I am also a senior advisor at CCS, one of your sponsors of this event today. And it's my special pleasure to welcome you all. We gathered here a year ago for a similar gathering. How many of you were here last year? Oh, old friends, good. Uh, Very uh, successful uh, exchange, and we decided that this venue could not be more perfect uh, for this kind of uh, uh, inquiry and this kind of exchange that we're uh, planning for you all today. Uh, A word about the Commonwealth Club. You probably know it. You probably have been here for other occasions, uh, but we are very proud of this, of this new clubhouse. As you know, we have existed in this city for over 100 years. We've never existed before in a place as beautiful and as engaging and as uh, functional as this new clubhouse is. We opened a year ago, uh, and we have been nonstop in terms of uh, hosting about 400 events a year. Uh, that makes this a very special place for exchange of points of view, opportunities to engage with uh, some of the best thinkers in, in the world, and uh, have gatherings like this. Uh, let me say a few words about, uh, about our plans for today. Uh, this is uh, uh, an exchange that we are having both here, but also elsewhere around the country. Uh, You likely have been reading some headlines in the last uh, 24, uh, 48 hours about the findings of the USA Giving Report, and we'll have an opportunity to engage with some uh, very thoughtful people on on those issues. Uh, One of the things that we need to keep in mind, I think, as we sit here today is that the Commonwealth Club really is here because of philanthropy. Uh, It would be here not at all if it were not for philanthropy. It is completely uh, uh, self-directing and uh, self-supporting, and by that I mean that we turn to our friends, uh, our foundations, our members, to ensure that we have not only the beautiful facility, but also the opportunity to engage, as we will be doing today. Uh, Over the past decade, along with the growth of the local economy, uh, we've seen the absolute critical importance of philanthropy, not only in supporting organizations like this one, but also addressing regional disparities in homelessness, housing, education, health care, and as we've seen in this era of climate change, disaster relief. Uh, philanthropy is a way of life in the Bay Area and is needed more than ever. It's in our DNA in the region and its citizens, and it's why I am proud that we are hosting today's event. Uh, before turning the program over to Rick Happy of CCS Fundraising to kick off the first part of the program, I'd like to personally extend an invitation to all of you to come visit us again. Uh, we are here. We hope that you will be here often uh, and be enlightened and engaged by the uh, challenging uh, program that we have in, uh, to offer uh, on an annual basis. I'd love to welcome you back to this experience, our wide array of programs, and please do consider hosting an event in this beautiful space. Now let me tell you how pleased I am to introduce Rick Happy of CCS Fundraising, 
who is the principal and managing director here in San Francisco, the country's leading fundraising consulting firm. We'll discuss the results of this year's Giving USA study from both a national and a regional perspective. Thank you again for being here. We're proud to host you. Thanks. Thanks so much, Dennis, and welcome, everybody. Uh, CCS is pleased to be partnering with the Commonwealth Club in Candid West, and I get to formally open this meeting of the Commonwealth Club with a ceremonial banging of the gavel. It's really actually kind of cool to do that, so. Uh, we're really grateful, as Dennis said, for the, uh, the Commonwealth Club's role in the community um, and everything the Commonwealth Club is doing. We're delighted to partner with Foundation Center and GuideStar, which has resulted in the Foundation Center by Candid. Um, we are going to do some things today. We're going to do a live poll. So everybody get your phones out and get ready. We want to find out a little bit about who you are. Um, and we are going to, um, uh, we'll walk you through that in a second. We have an all-star incredible panel that we'll talk about in a second, and then we're going to run through the data pretty quickly so they can come up and talk. CCS, as Dennis mentioned, an international fundraising consulting firm. In 2018, we partnered with more than 550 organizations around the world and across the country in 43 states. There are too many of our friends here today for me to mention them all because I know I'd miss someone, but we are delighted that you are here. Um, again, a great special thanks to the Commonwealth Club and the Foundation Center by Candid. And we have a panel that is going to be moderated by Dr. Steve Lockhart, who is the Chief Medical Officer of Sutter Health. He is the chair of the campaign for Nature Bridge. And our wonderful panelists, Lori Dax of the Bechtel Foundation, Julie Packard of the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and civic leader uh, Sissy Swig here in San Francisco. When Steve and the panel come up, Steve will tell you a little bit more about um, Lori and Julie and Sissy. Although I guess if we'd say a little bit more about Lori and Julie and Sissy and you're here, you might be in the wrong location. So uh, you might want to get your Google Maps out and see if you're in the right place. We are so delighted for them to be here. So take your phones out and open up a new SMS text, text message and enter 22333. The first question... What sector are you affiliated with and do you support? You may answer multiple answers, and you can see the um, questions up there, uh, the numbers up there, and it will appear on the screen as you start to answer. And we have two more questions after this. So we are represented by a lot of educational institutions, the environment, animal welfare, healthcare institutions, social and human services. The next question is going to be for nonprofit leaders, development officers in the audience. If you're representing a nonprofit, was the contributed revenue of your organization in 2018 more equal to or less than the contributed revenue of 2017? So was it more than, equal to, or less than, giving over year over year? Stop. I'm kidding. <laughs> And as Dennis said, we're doing this around the country, and I will tell you, we're doing these live polls, and we're seeing a lot of the same results that, you know, the vast majority of uh, institutions are raising more money this year, in, in 2018, than they did in 2019. Final question, if you're a donor, everybody in the room is a donor, were your contributions more, equal to, or less, 2018 versus 2017? So this is all of us as donors. 
And again, you can see that mirror is really the results from other institutions. Thank you. It gives us a good sense of everyone who's here and who you represent and your uh, giving um, and your uh, results from last year. Let's jump into the national landscape. In 2018, according to Giving USA, Americans gave $427 billion to charitable organizations. That's the most ever. And you can see how um, uh, Americans give. 68% of that comes from individuals, 18% from foundations, 9% from bequests, and 5% from corporations. Where there's a little news here is the first time ever that individuals are contributing lower than 70% of the overall um, uh, pie. Uh, Foundations are uh, representing 18%, which is the highest number. Bequests and corporations have remained pretty steady. Where this gets a little tricky, and I ask you to bear with me, is the giving estimate of $427 billion um, is being matched against the adjusted year-end last year from $424 billion. So what we've done is we're going to compare last year's number at this time, which was $410 billion. That's about a 4% increase year over year. The $427 billion that was given to the estimate, that will probably adjust to somewhere between $435 and $445 billion at the end of this year. So we're trying to compare apples to oranges. Now, there are some challenges, economic conditions, uh, policy environment that are affecting giving, but we do feel that the maybe some of the headlines you have read aren't as um, accurate as uh, we would like. Now, we're comparing the next couple of slides, the adjusted in 2017 versus the current 2018, and you can see some of the results. Again, giving by uh, foundations, corporations, um, up, individuals, bequests, flatter down, and then you can see the largest groups, international affairs, environment, animal welfare. This is the first time in 2018 where religion, as the largest sector, the largest recipient, has declined and has gone under 30%. For many years, we would talk about religion being about a third of all philanthropy. Um, it's been on a steady decline, and that's really true since the 60s and 70s, when it was much as, as high as 45 or 50%. This is the first time it's under 30%. Now, this is also houses of worship. It is not religious universities, healthcare organizations, or other affiliated institutions. You can see the other sectors that account for um, uh, major swaths of the uh, philanthropic marketplace. Education is the second largest. That's about three quarters colleges and universities and about one quarter independent uh, primary uh, private schools. Human services, foundations at 12%, health at 10%, and you can see the other um, uh, sectors. We, I, should, I should, should have said this in the beginning, and we'll show you a slide toward the end. You will have, we have this information online. You'll be able to go online and get it, so you don't have to worry about furiously taking notes as you look at some of these uh, statistics. And you can see some of the sector changes as well, uh, international affairs, environment, and some of the declines from the uh, other large sectors. The um, Chronicle of Philanthropy does a report on million-dollar gifts from uh, the top 10 sectors. This is a list of publicly reported gifts, so it's not every million-dollar gift by any means, but you can see some of the uh, sectors that are receiving large gifts. Higher education, which receives probably a preponderance of million-dollar, uh, seven-figure, eight-figure, nine-figure gifts, healthcare institutions. Foundations, those are gifts that are going from donors to foundations. A, a famous example would be people like Warren Buffett to the Gates Foundation and others. And you can see sort of across the board who is receiving uh, just a, a small slice of large gifts in philanthropy. Economic indicators, and we'll talk about tax policy in a few minutes, do play a role. Um, 
Inflation-adjusted DPI, disposable personal income, grew 2.3% over 2017. And gross domestic product, again, inflation-adjusted, grew about 2.7%. But there was a lot of volatility toward the end of 2018 in the stock market, which may have played a role in giving, we're not sure. As a percentage of gross domestic product, giving has been pretty sluggish. It's roughly been about a 1.5% to 2% for the last 40 years. And really in the last 20 years, it's remained at about 1.9 to 2.1% of GDP. I think it's incumbent upon all of us to meet this challenge, take this challenge that we need to grow giving as a percentage of GDP beyond 2, 2.1%, where it's really been stuck for the last 20 years to 2.5%, 3% or beyond. I know it's a big, big, big effort, but I think it's something within our sector. Um, it's a challenge, as you can see, from the late 70s going up percent and a half to 2%. Takes a long time, but I think it's something we should really be focused on as an industry and as a sector. The same can be said for um, giving as individual giving, individuals as a uh, percentage of uh, disposable personal income. You see it's been relatively flat for 40 years, 2%, maybe as high as 2.1%, down to 1.9%. So again, a real challenge for our industry and our sector. The good news, people like to give. And people are generous. More than half of Americans give, and they give an average of about $2,500 annually. High net worth individuals, people who are really characterized as those who give, whose net worth is a million dollars or more, liquid net worth, uh, give almost $30,000 on average, and 90% of them give. So they are, Americans are generous. There are opportunities for us to grow the sector. We have to send the right messages. Donors tell us repeatedly that the impact of their gifts is their number one motivator, far beyond any kind of moral obligation, being asked, or financial relief. It's impact. The challenge I think that we face is only one in five organizations tells its donors the impact of their gifts. So that's where, as organizations, we need to do a better job to tell our donors whether they're giving us $100, a million dollars, or $100 million dollars the impact of their gift, and what kind of a difference that's made for the organization. So we do see some uh, rays, some strong rays of hope around um, the sector, but we've got to send and repeat and emphasize the right messages. So let's do a couple of minutes, a peek at um, uh, the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area philanthropy, and then uh, we'll have the panel come up and really dig into this a little bit more. A couple of snapshot pieces here in the the Bay Area. The Bay Area is GDP. Uh, If California were a country, its GDP would be the fifth largest economy in the world. If the Bay Area were a country, it would be the 18th largest economy in the world. So we are um, behind Turkey, but ahead of the Netherlands. So that's good news. (laughs) All right, so (laughs) I didn't get that laugh yesterday. So that's good, thank you. Um, We have over 100 billionaires in the Bay Area, 53 are on the Forbes 400. We have 200,000 plus millionaire households, nine of the country's wealthiest cities. And you can see our total nonprofit revenues and and assets. And my dear friend Dennis Collins said uh, at a a gathering of of our friends a couple of years ago, San Francisco is like Florence in the Renaissance right now. So we are in a great time. We have a great opportunity. But I think we have to do more to really maximize that. Our distribution of large nonprofits, the largest in the Bay Area, looks different than it does across the country. And you can see 
where we're um, very interested in, in the Bay Area, human services, arts and culture, international aid, the environment, health, and you can see re religion really at the bottom, which I think is a reflection more of our communities than uh, the national trends. And you can see in terms of uh, uh, those organizations, the, the smaller graph in terms of their assets and contributions and revenue and expenses. Foundation giving, community foundations uh, represent less than 1% of the foundations, but they hold a quarter of the assets and the remaining foundations hold about, uh, or independent foundations, I'm sorry, hold about 35% of the total assets. Their giving priorities include education, health, environment, human services, and nonprofit management. Our corporate giving, and you can see led by uh, organizations like the Sobrato Organization, Google, uh, Cisco, Wells Fargo, Salesforce, some of them are almost entirely devoted to the Bay Area, some only a small portion of their giving is devoted to the Bay Area. Just to kind of give you a snapshot of what we are, um, uh, our local foundations and corporations and how they view philanthropy. More than 10 years ago now, about 11 years ago, the Giving Pledge was introduced by, um, I mentioned uh, Warren Buffett and Melinda and Bill Gates, asking uh, those who have the, the greatest affluence to pledge 50% of their uh, assets to charity over the course of their lifetimes. They've garnered 204 signatories 39 of them are from the Bay Area. It's about 19%. And they have 19 new signatories in 2018-2019. Following along with that, you can see some of the large gifts that occurred in our backyard in 2018. UCSF, the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, the Signal Foundation, the Sandberg Fund, uh, the Conservatory of Music, Stanford Law School, SF State, and Lucille Packard. So those kind of give you a smattering of the largest gifts that came across in the... Um, in 2018. We have a, a, a panel of three um, uh, incredible women in philanthropy and civic affairs, and we wanted to share with you some uh, data about women in philanthropy. In 2010, women held $34 trillion worldwide in um, private wealth. They now, in 2015, it's now 50, it was net $51 trillion. By 2020, we anticipate it will be $72 trillion. This is Men are from, I think I had this right, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Next slide, or the next data point. Women with $5 million or more in assets cite impact as the reason they give. Men with $5 million or more in assets cite tax benefits. <laughs> so ask the women, okay? <laughs> Do yourselves a favor. Don't bother with people who look like me. Um, we do, we're going to talk a little bit about values-based philanthropy, and this is a quote from the dean of research at the Lilly School, that philanthropy that really is values-driven means it's been fused, driven, informed, and powered by a donor's core values. And let's look at values-based philanthropy and family foundations. This comes from the National Center for uh, Family Philanthropy. 64% of those foundations organize discussions on core values with its younger generation, two-thirds of them. 40% of them say the younger generation is interested in different issues than the older generation. So for all of us in the room, it's important to listen, talk, and listen and engage and not just expect that how one generation of uh, philanthropists behaved is going to be the same way that the next generation is. And the world is changing rapidly, as we all know, and I think that's a fair way to, to approach this. A couple, last couple of slides before we ask the panel to come up. We've heard a lot about, and I've heard this in my entire career, about the intergenerational transfer of wealth. Um, we expect $8.8 .8 trillion will be passed down to Gen X and millennials by 2027. 
Matures and baby boomers do remain the most generous generation or the most generous age group. We do find that philanthropy is a function of age, uh, but uh, Gen Xers are starting to approach their uh, prime giving years. And while the millennials are still a work in progress, I think they don't get as much credit as they deserve. Three quarters of them volunteer. Um, And so again, but when they give, half of their money goes to a single organization. So don't discount or dismiss the millennials. Get them to volunteer. Engage with them with your organization. And that's the way, I think, to best uh, bring them along as prospective donors. And Gen Z is just obviously beginning their philanthropic journey. So the tax law. This has been a question that we've been asked probably the most often question at CCS that we've got in the, uh, received in the last uh, 12 to 18 months. How is that affecting giving? So in 2017, the standard deduction was doubled for individuals, but there was a $10,000 cap on the amount individuals can, dedu- can deduct from state and local taxes. We're concerned about this. We think that the potential impact could cut the number of households donating to charitable organizations by as much as $2.5 million per year. That could reduce charitable giving by up to $19 billion a year in 2025, and we think we're going to see fewer small to mid-sized donations. Now, the good news is Congress is looking at um, ways to dial back uh, some of the harshest provisions, you know, five proposals currently on the table. I just said the good news is Congress is looking at revising the, the 2017 law. I apologize. We're on our own, guys. Uh, but let's, let's hope that they make some amend- amendments and adjustments to this because we do think this could have a deleterious impact on giving um, going forward. I don't know uh, if Gloria has arrived, if, if, if it's time for her to come up. So let me um, ask in a second the panel to come up. CCSfundraising.com backslash philanthropic landscape will give you this data. Now, if you want to read the whole thing, if you read the Mueller report, you might want to read this, okay? This is givingusa.org, and it's a 30% discount, and the code is CCS. So, without any further ado, let me invite Steve Lockhart, Sissy Swig, Lori Dax, and Julie Packer to come up and engage with each other and then with all of you. Thanks very much. This is our, our order of... All right. Good morning, everyone. And uh, I just want to start by thank you, thanking you for uh, coming out this morning to join us. Uh, I want to thank all of you who are philanthropists uh, for your support of making our community a better place. For those of you who are uh, involved with uh, nonprofits, uh, I want to thank you for taking that philanthropic support and turning it into really wonderful uh, outcomes for our community. Um, This morning, uh, I'm going to briefly introduce our panelists and then uh, enter into a little bit of a discussion and then invite you to participate as well. I want to start by saying that I'm Steve Lockhart, Chief Medical Officer of Sutter Health, and I am a little bit intimidated. And in a moment, you'll understand why. <laughs> um, uh, let's start by introducing Sissy Swig. Um, Sissy has been part of the philanthropic uh, landscape and community here forever and has really just uh, transformed uh, our ability to uh, have access to, appreciate, and understand art. She's been involved with uh, 
just so Jewish causes that has enriched the life of all of us here in the Bay Area. I know uh, on a personal note, very grateful for your support of some organizations that have supported young people and education and uh, particularly some young African-American uh, males get, get getting opportunities. And uh, as a Sutter Health executive who once ran St. Luke's Hospital, it's a hospital which now is Mission Bernal uh, campus of um, CPMC, which wouldn't have existed without uh, your support at a time when the hospital was barely surviving. So thank you for that. Um, Lori Dax uh, is here with us, and Lori is um, the uh, president and vice chair of the S.D. Brechtel Jr. Foundation, uh, a wonderful person and a friend. And Lori and I were commenting earlier, we've been through a lot of, a lot of things together, uh, including her um, support and advocacy for land conservation. Uh, we've worked on um, making our state parks, which were on the brink of extinction, that wonderful uh, resource that we've all of us, I'm sure, have enjoyed. Um, she was responsible for providing not only philanthropic support, but leadership to help us uh, save our parks, uh, support for you know, organizations that bring young kids out into um, the national parks and pl places for education. You can see a picture here of one of those opportunities through Nature Bridge. And yes, in full disclosure, I am okay. a devotee of that organization. So if that name comes up more than once, you'll know why. And that picture I did not do, by the way. <laughs> um, but also the building of character um, and civic engagement in our, for our young people. So Lori's been involved in so many different things. And her fingerprints have been quietly placed uh, throughout the Bay Area. If you look closely, you'll find them everywhere. And Julie Packard, who is also, another colleague and friend, Julie, is the CEO of Monterey Bay Aquarium. If you are not a member, <laughs> then you can pull out your iPhone or your iPad and go online and join because you obviously should be. Uh, it's just an incredible resource, I mean, international resource, um, both in terms of uh, community engagement, but also the research that goes on there um, and the support it provides for um, oceans, uh, for climate work. Uh, and I happen to be a fellow trustee of the David Lucille Packard Foundation with Julie. Um, and so the work there is extended into uh, areas like, as I mentioned, climate, oceans, uh, reproductive health, and um, child, uh, child health and uh, health coverage. Um, Julie also has been incredibly involved with uh, saving our state parks um, and many, many other things, including, of course, I said it would come out of my mouth mouth more than once, Nature Bridge, and the programs that we provide um, with uh, children. So let me start with um, a question that I will open up to all of you, which is, um, what's your first gut-level reaction to the data that we've just shared, and are, are there areas of optimism or er and areas of concern that you might have based upon the data that you've seen? Sissy, let's start with you, perhaps. Well, thank, first of all, thank you very much. Uh, I'm really honored to have been asked to, be, to participate, and um, I think this is wonderful, and I enjoy looking at the wonderful crowd of what I call the individuals that enable, certainly enable me to be able to uh, try to do the things that I love to do. So thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I had a, a mixed uh, view of the data that I read. On one hand, I thought, you know, that's wonderful, and people are giving. And on the other hand, I guess coming from the Bay Area, 
and are very much aware of the, fa of the, the amount of new wealth, particularly that's come into our uh, community, that um, there's so much more room for giving and giving back. And I just hope that <clears throat> very soon those individuals, corporations, uh, will understand the value of giving back and how they enable so much, but how they also enable their workers to feel good about participation. So. Great. Thanks. Laurie, did you have some thoughts? Well, I'd also like to say thank you, and I'm honored to be on the stage with uh, three people up here and to have a chance to share some of my thoughts and also uh, learn. And I, I found the uh, report that Rick presented uh, interesting. I, I agree 100% with Sissy. I, it, it was mixed, mixed information for me to see individual giving. And I know we've got the issue around what was corrected or not corrected yet, but I, I find it um, a little disheartening that with the growth of the wealth in this country for certain people, that those certain people are really not giving substantially more. The challenges, whether it's climate, health, education, water, which is a huge one for our foundation, are enormous. And unless we devote both capital and intellectual capital to start working on these problems, we're not going to get ahead of them. They are ahead of us. Um, the one other thing that I found interesting, and not, well, maybe a little surprising, but is the fact that women are more supposedly uh, interested in impact and the men are more interested in tax. You know, I'd like to see it. We all should be interested in both because they are, they are critical factors and critical influences. And I, okay, I'm going to stop at that and I'll talk about okay. impact later. <laughs> well, I know Steve, you have more Steve to say. knows I have to be controlled. I get going. And it's, <laughs> I know you have more to say. And, and I'm we'll, feeling we will like hear it with point. this thing. Uh, <laughs> Julie, would you like to... Uh, Comment as well on your, your impression? Sure, sure. And again, um, thank you, um, Steve, for inviting me here. And it's great opportunity for us to say thank you to everyone in the audience for all the great work that you do. Those of us who are funders, obviously, we couldn't get anything done if not for you. And we all need to uh, do a lot more listening. <laughs> That's always my uh, my philosophy. So um, I... I would just say ditto to what these two ladies said. Um, uh, I didn't, really, the, the main thing that came out for me was, you know, just looking at the trends, and, and one trend was rise in international giving, which or giving to international causes, which is something that we've all seen. And I know I'm, I shouldn't be speaking, the Packard Foundation has a very big global program, but we also have maintained a commitment to our local giving, and that's an uh, important mission that our foundation and others are really trying to uh, make a lot of noise about. And so, that, you know, I was hoping to see a little more, little more action and attention on that, on that front. The only other thing I'd say um, is I'm a, as a scientist, I'm a total data nerd, and so I always look at a report like this and start, like, tearing it apart. I'm like, okay, really? You know, what's behind this? What does it mean giving to a foundation and all of that? So, you know, I'd encourage everyone to uh, demand better and more data, and, um, and in the end, it's really all about getting to know your individual donors and not, not exactly what the trends are saying, so I wouldn't worry too much about it. Good. <laughs> 
So, so let me pose another question uh, here because 28, I will say we've talked about 2017, 18, now looking at 19, there have definitely been some social, political, and economic changes in the world uh, since that time. And how have those changes sort of framed or impacted your giving, framed what, how you think about both the impact of your giving and maybe uh, adjusted your thoughts about where it's appropriate to give? And maybe we'll just go the other way on that. Sure. Um, well, I guess, I mean, I have two hats in life. One is a trustee of the David Lucille Packard Foundation. And then, of course, I have um, do some of my own personal giving, although my parents did leave most of their assets to the foundation. So that's mainly where the foundation, um, I mean, the foundation's our main vehicle. Um, the political landscape has had a huge impact on us. Um, pretty much everything that is a principal area of interest for our foundation has been massively um, attacked and undermined <laughs> from climate to women's reproductive rights to you know safety nets for children and health care to a good early start for kids birth to three you know you name it the whole sweep so at our foundation we have pretty much in the last couple of years mustered every shred of discretionary funding that we could find and put it toward um, what we call federal defense. Um, <laughs> so I'm just that that's 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 that's, that's where we've been. Um, Steve Steve knows um, how how it is and and I feel like for decades um, around the table we've said when can we quit funding a, a women's right to choose at, at the state level and we're not done, I guess, and you know, hopefully we can someday look forward to a better day, but we are really just have needed to double down on, on the issues that we really care about. That's, that's a change, and have much more limited opportunity to launch new interest areas right now. Laurie? We're in a little bit of a different situation. The foundation was started in 1957 by my parents, and we made the decision in 2008 as a board and then announced it in 2009 that we would be shutting down, spending down the foundation. We announced it to our grantees that we would be doing that by 2016. We are still here. Um, there continued to be significant resources coming into the foundation, and as we looked at our strategies in terms of what we wanted to do, it, we got into much more complex um, ways of thinking about our grant making, really looking at systems as opposed to a lot of the direct service grants that we used to do. So I would say that while horrified and a bit despairing at times about what's happening, we have stayed pretty much true to the areas that we're working in. It's land conservation, it's water in particular, and around education, working with districts around the new standards. Um, it's been a challenge for me as the head of the foundation, especially with some of our younger staff who are, you know, want to make change and think we can do it fast and, you know, pump a lot of money into something to sort of say, no, you know, we've done the long game, we're staying with what it is, and that there's not a lot that we could do other than the fact that we've substantially increased the amount that we've infused into our work. Um, than what we can, what, than what we have time to do. Um, so, we, what part of what we're doing is simply allowing our staff to have time to pursue some of their own interests. Um, but it's it's a scary time. Yeah. 
Sissy, what are your thoughts? Well, <clears throat> I love that last couple of words. It's a scary time. Um, I think it's a very scary time. I think I, you know the world is just continuing to spin. And my concern, my very basic concern, is a loss of sense of values. I think whether you're in an individual, within your family, whether it's your business, whether it's your institution, taking a look at the values that you're espousing, that you're using, that you're sharing, that you are prioritizing today is probably, for me, the most important thing. Because when you have a strong set of values, whether they're coming from your family, whether they're coming just within yourself, you can share those with the person next to you and create a relationship and an understanding of what your responsibility is to creating a better environment. An environment that probably, if it was multiplied, creates a better community, a community, a country, a state, a world. So I'm so, um, I'm so concentrated on that. Uh, it is the most important thing for me right now. Thank you for, for saying that. Actually, you anticipated my next question, which was um, about how, do, how does your giving reflect your values, or how maybe framed differently, how should your giving, uh, because we're all donors in this room, and if we're not, we should be, uh, <laughs> not just recipients, we all give. So um, how, how, how should we think about that? Laurie, maybe we can start with you this time. Well, I, I, we, our work is based on four fundamental values that we set up many, 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 many years ago, and that's integrity, excellence, uh, respect, and uh, optimism. And I will tell you, trying to stick to the value of being optimistic has been probably one of our biggest challenges in the last couple of years. But I think it is around you know, bringing your whole self to your work, whether you're a donor or whether you're an NGO doing the work, whether you're working in the community, and being able to be very open about what you can do and what you can't do. Um, the respect part, we, we, our foundation is very much drawing what our work should be and how we should do it from the community, doing field building, doing organizational capacity, building in our grantees. So we find great organizations with terrific leadership and good bench strength that is doing work in the areas that we're interested in, and we continue to support them. So hewing to our values, I think, drives a, it basically drives what we do. I mean, that's, that's the kingpin of, of anything that any of us should do, whether you're a philanthropist or run an NGO or just a person, is if you don't know who you are and you don't know what your values are, you can really get sideswiped and pulled off of it by what's happening in the world. Uh, integrity, what can I say? I mean, you know, it's, we're having a national debate that doesn't seem to be going quite right around integrity. Right. Julie, how about you? What are your thoughts on the values? Um, yes, well, uh, it's interesting. Lori's family and, and, and our family, our, our dads were friends. Um, <laughs> they loved to duck hunt and, you know, do manly things together. <laughs> but um, they, and, and, and we, um, so our, our family's real, a, a 
our family foundation um, is driven by by really you know most of the same the same ideas and um and for us uh, really starts with you know integrity of course um, but but also belief in people trust in people um, that was an, a tenet of the HP way that um, my father obviously uh, you know kind of felt very strongly about in creating his company and. If anything, um, I would say the the biggest value that we all learned from my parents was, you know, to to not be arrogant and to never put yourself above above others. And so our foundations always really try to approach things with a, a very grantee focused um, approach. And um, and in in that way, uh, I would say, um, I you know, I wish a lot of other donors and 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 funders would 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 take that approach. I, I feel that as uh, especially a lot of the very successful business people that have come across a lot of wealth and are starting their philanthropies and um, they've been so successful at their businesses, they, you know, be easy to think that you've got the silver bullet answer. And, um, and I'm proud that our foundation, we've, we've been in the trenches for a long time and really being in it for the long haul, realizing that, you know, making change could be, you know, a 10 or 20 year investment and the really the people on the ground are the ones that need to lead the way. Um, that's, that's really the underpinning for us. Great. Sissy, your thoughts? Well, I expressed my thoughts as far as, <coughs> as far as the values were concerned. And, um, you know, I came from, um, I'm a civic person. Um, I came from a very large family. Um, I was raised caring for others because we had to care for our cousins and our sisters and so on. And, uh, and what that imbued in me has, has just shown all the way through as something that is a high priority, and I try to share that with my own children. And uh, also, we have, we're in business, and I try to encourage our business to have the same sense of values and caring for the community and caring for, for each other. Um, we can't go down the path by ourselves. And um, collaborating, I mean, very much aware of, of the uh, Bechtel Foundation, very much aware of the Packard Foundation and what they've done. They are reflecting the values that came out of their families, as we've just heard. So it's not difficult. It's just that you have to make, you have to look inside yourself. I have a mantra, maybe some of you have heard me talk about this, of know thyself, mm -hmm. of really going inside of yourself and finding what's important to you in an honest way, and then realizing what your purpose is and how you can make a difference. Uh, I think that's very helpful. That's been very helpful to me because we all get so distracted and most often we're told what we must do rather than what we feel we should do. So um, that's sort of the way I travel. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I think I may already have the answer to my next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway because you've talked, all, each of you, about the importance of family. And as I was sitting here listening, I was reflecting on my own experience growing up, and we didn't 
have economic resources, very many of them, um, which is a euphemism for we were pretty poor. But, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that the values weren't around being philanthropic. So I, was, I consider myself a philanthropist since being small, because that was what we were supposed to do, was always think about giving somehow something. Um, so my question is about philanthropic mentorship. And did you have philanthropic mentors? My, my guess is that you're going to reference family, but that's OK, because that, that, that works. Um, but who were, who were your philanthropic mentors? Who did you look up to or learn from um, in terms of developing as a philanthropist? So let's so see how that went. Well, believe it or not, Eleanor Roosevelt was, huh. was really my mentor from afar. We never met. <laughs> <laughs> But I could have. <laughs> but uh, she was always somebody that I just, she had such strong principles. And she was, she was a feminist. And she was so respectful. And she did so much uh, in a quiet fashion at times and sometimes uh, louder. But um, I, really, uh, I really looked to her, and that was sort of the, the beginning for me. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Laurie, how about you? Well, Steve, you're right. I, I would say most of mine has come from my parents. I mean, um, we're a wealthy family, um, but we've tried to keep... Uh, the, the corporation has had some visibility, certainly, but the family maybe less so. And it was always a matter of don't lead with your money, lead with your heart, lead with your mind, lead with good works. Very critically important to give back. That's that's a, a absolute huge responsibility and so I think that that was something that I heard from the earliest earliest days my dad was an eagle scout I mean it was there's lots of things that he sort of demonstrated in his life but I will tell you if I had to pick one professional who um, I would love if I've always sort of aspired to be like it's actually Carol Larson who runs the Packard Foundation oh. um, I saw her recently, and I could give her a big hug and say, I can't believe you're retiring, but I am too. <laughs> but the way in which the Packard Foundation has been able to take family members and non-family members and really be responsive, as Julie said, to the field and realizing that it's the boots on the ground who know what they're doing and to the degree that we are being... Um, there's a lot of influence now, a lot of money, and a lot of sort of young or new people coming into philanthropy. And, you know, if I could leave a message for them, it's do no harm, because there's a lot of harm that's being done for those of us that have been working in this field for a very long time, who understand how complex it is, and that you can't just tie the money, and, you know, there's a lot about impact, but how do you measure some of these? What, what, what are decent metrics when you're talking about people's lives? So Carol Larson has it all and has, I think, managed a fabulous foundation. And I hope she will continue to 
spread that wisdom around. It's important. Yeah. Like, I'm just going to comment you bring a smile to my face because we all love Carol. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. We, we, we may, uh, you know, lock her in her room or yeah. something. <laughs> leave, but, no, uh, send her out. Send yeah. her out. <laughs> right, right. Well, she may have some time for that when she retires. So, Julie? Uh, yeah. Um, well, for me, for sure, it, it was all about family and um, you know, growing up, my dad was super busy, obviously, growing the business. But my mother, when I was young, I thought she had a full-time job because she was gone eight to five. And actually, as it turned out, she was volunteering full-time and then some. And, um, and she set such a model of, of giving back, and her issue was children, of course. And um, she was very involved in... Uh, you know, child health at, at all levels. Uh, and so that, that, that just set a, a, an incredible role model of, of giving back. That's what you do. We, we you know, were are a family of privilege, and, and, um, and that was just an expectation. So my father also, my parents set up the Packard Foundation in the 60s, and we were all the four in my generation, the four kids, we were... Um, I wouldn't say we were asked to go on the board. We were um, instructed that <laughs> we were going on this family foundation board and, um, when we were 21. And so, you know, in terms of my philanthropic mentor, you know, obviously I had, you know, decades to work side by side with my parents and, you know, as our foundation grew and certainly um, learned an immense amount from them with their style and wisdom and, you know, what we learned from a lot of trial and error and good grants and not so good grants and good ideas and half-baked ideas and you know it's it's a journey um as 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 all of you know because you're you're on it but they for sure um were were my mentors great so laura you um brought up the notion of our sort of next generation of philanthropists the new young folks coming forward um and you, you, you thought it said do no harm. What a, let's talk about the, the next generation, how we engage them, and what should, what would, what should we expect their role to be um, going forward? How do we keep the ball rolling with our younger philanthropists? I think it's trying to find that balance between listening, really listening and asking for what they're thinking and how they're thinking and why they're thinking that way, and at the same time, uh, realizing that some of us have some wisdom and experience to share. So it's, it's being able to have those communications that are just part of good interpersonal communications, I think. Um, it, it's, it's of interest to me, and it'll be interesting certainly over the next, I don't know, 5, 10, 15 years, how many of the new people that are coming in to philanthropy are coming in using a lot different vehicles than foundations per se. There's the LLCs, there's a lot around the C4, so there's, they're, they're inventing some new ways to contribute and, and make change. And the patience that's needed, as Julie referenced, and Sissy also, it's, you know, it takes years and years and years to work on complicated problems and realizing probably you're never going to solve them, you're just going to, you know, improve an incremental improvement Sometimes it's the best you can do and you need to feel good about it. And trying to get your ego out of what you're doing. It's, it's, um, 
So it's, it's, it's not necessarily young per se, but it's just a new perspective on wealth and um, the ability and the desire to make change, but to do it in a way that really is constructive in the community. There's lots of examples of, of foundations or individuals who go in and put a, they think they've got the answer. They often haven't taken the time to really understand the problem. And they go in and they make a huge investment. And, you know, sometimes it works. Sometimes it's great and you needed this sort of new way of thinking out of the box. And other times it really does some damage and, and some disrepair that then some of us who are sort of the, the slow turtles, you know, not the jackrabbits, that, who, who have to come in and sort of clean it up. We, we can't do that anymore. We've got to start making sure that we, everybody shares what they've learned so that we can move things ahead in a more direct way. Uh, the challenges are just enormous. Mm-hmm. Sissy, please, well, please. We have a very interesting <clears throat> experience uh, in our, our family company. Um, we are working with the fourth generation, where the fourth generation um, chooses members uh, to come onto the board of the company. Uh, but also within them, they talk about what their priorities are as far as philanthropy and coming together. And you have something like uh, 20 different voices, uh, some uh, the age range maybe from 20 to um, 50, 60, uh, talking together. And, and hopefully what emerges is a solid council or assembly, whatever you want to call it, of fourth-generation uh, individuals. And it's, uh, it's been interesting for me to see them develop their priorities or to come together and, uh, and reduce the number but get behind particular priorities and also to respect each other and listen to each other. So, so we're, we're in a little bit halfway into the process, and it keep, seems to be getting better and better. But it's, a, it's a really an, an, an interesting experience to watch it happen and to realize that um, this is a different time than when I first started. But there are some basics that everybody has to get behind, and we've addressed those right. earlier. So stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> Julie, would you like? Well, it's such an interesting and important <clears throat> question, especially as we keep hearing about this massive intergenerational transfer of wealth, and everyone's like, yay, okay, you know, when is that happening? And we'll all get to a better place. And, um, <clears throat> and I, I guess a couple thoughts about it. Our, our family foundation, we're, um, we have the third generation involved now, and as Sissy said, you know, it's an interesting journey, and um, they range from early 30s to mid-40s, and, um, and you know, what, what I notice, and I've also read about this, um, and, and, and I'm sure you have too, because you're um, out fundraising, is that, you know, some of the younger generations, whether it's Gen X and even more the millennials, um, they don't, they've grown up with a totally different sense of community than, than we have. And their community is, is a global community because of the internet. And, um, 
certainly in our family, I notice, you know, the, the next generation, they're all, you know, scary smart, very well educated, really responsible. They, they have the family values of, of giving back and making a difference. Um, but uh, they, you know, they're much more focused on global issues, which probably relates to the, you know, the data trend that we are seeing, more global giving. And uh, my concern about that, obviously, is, you know, what does that mean for the future of our community? I mean, you might be a global citizen, but you live somewhere. And um, that somewhere requires social services and transportation systems and housing and, and all the things that we're struggling with so much um, in our Bay Area here. So, um, and and we I, I do find, you know, frustration at, at our at our foundation, Steve, Steve knows we have a local grant program committee and it's like everyone wanna works, everyone wants to be on the international population and reproductive health <laughs> committee, you know, or the climate committee. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine, that's interesting, I love that stuff too, but our community, you know, people are really, really struggling. <laughs> and um, so it's not like they don't wanna spend the money on it, I mean, they're fine with us spending the spending something on it, but engaging in those solutions, engaging in your community where you are it is a trend that is um, not going in a good direction. Right. So that that's something that I see. And, and I don't, the, the, the answer to it is just for all of us, or all of you rather, that are, that are working in the community to, you're just gonna have to really, you know, step it up and, and engage these people and you know what is happening what are the issues and um and you know the trend toward uh also as as people have more and more resources and they're giving they want to do big strategic grant making um programs they're looking for big solutions and and the direct service grant making is is the loser in that scheme and we we see that going on and it's you know it it's a big concern and and um so uh, I think, you know, we it just, again, it's person by person, you know, engaging, you're finding young people and groups of young people that really, you know, you can engage and that like know what's going on in their community and our community and having them, having them tell you, you know, here's how we're going to spread the word here. Because we, you know, those of us that are kind of in the older generations and uh, have, have our lens on the world, obviously, I don't need to tell you, um, you know, each generation has, has their own lens and it's a very different one. Right. Uh, yes, Sissy. Um, you know, the, the word engaging is so important and the word implementation is becoming more and more important. We, there are so many amazing ideas out there, so many good gestures, good intentions, but what's concerning me more and more is the implementation, really focusing on that rather than what I call kicking the can down the road. And I know that, I mean, you're, you're in the fundraising business and you want to make sure that your plan is perfect. But when it spreads out and and will happen in 2020 or happen in 2021. And I'm thinking to myself, here is an issue that has to take place. It has to be resolved. We've got to learn to implement what these ideas are and get people engaged in making it happen now. 
And I don't know, I would love to hear what some of you have to say. I'd love to hear how you feel about that, because those words, engaging and implementation, um, are really key. I know that there's a, uh, in fundraising, the, um, uh, uh, what's the, when somebody gives a grant and and it's it's part of, um, uh, it's implementing, they, it's, it's, they want the metrics, they want, they want um, to see what the value is of, of their, their monies uh, now. Um, I think that's a very good path to go down. Uh, some people are a little concerned about that, but I think that's, um, that really makes you pay attention earlier rather than later. Great. Julie or Laurie, do you want to... I, I, I don't think I disagree with Sissy, but what I would say is that when we look at making grants, we look at sitting down with our grantees and talking about designing with them sort of what mutual outcomes they should expect of themselves and therefore we can expect of them. And I think the other thing that we've um, determined is that because the issues that we're working on are very complex, we... we done some capital, I mean, we supported this building, but, and those are easier grants to make. I mean, you know, if you have an engineering background, it's sort of, okay, you're on time, on budget. Yeah, okay, good. That's clear. (laughs) But most of the work we do is not that clear. And so what you are looking for are well-run organizations who are, know how to stick to their mission and produce results and having confidence that they will continue to do that. But one thing that I think is critically important is that that means, at least from our perspective, my perspective, certainly in our foundation's perspective, is that we need to do a lot more multiple-year grants. You know, you, you want to you help build something. You want to bring in a development officer. Well, here's, here's X dollars for this year. And the organization's thinking, okay, well, we've got one year to produce on this in order to be able to come back and maybe get a second year. I mean, who lives in such a short time frame? So I think we really need to continue to encourage people to be thinking about making multiple year commitments and giving the organizations the time, the bandwidth, the support, the thought partnership to sort of solve problems, um, and then the freedom to do it. I mean, um, I think we've, I don't think we're disagreeing, but I think we've also reached the point where we're, we're so this return on investment idea is, I, I'm not sure that it's working, I guess I would say. And Laurie, I'm just going to make one editorial comment uh, because as someone who's worked closely and been a part of a grantee organization that's worked with you closely, I think one thing that the foundation has done very well is to say to that organization, come to us when you have the warts, when you have the problem, come yeah. to us and we can help solve it rather than try to have a facade that, oh, yeah, everything's great. You know, you're the ones who give, give out the money, so we have to look good for you. It's rather, oh, we took some of the money and we did this, and then we found this other big yeah. sinkhole, and we don't want to fall in it, and here's what we need to do. And you, you're, you and your team coming back and saying, okay, let's work together to fix that. That's been huge. Yeah, you learn pretty quickly in this business of providing funds and contributions, you know, when people are shining you on. And I, I, I just, I, you know, I will stop a conversation up front and say, look, you know, I, I serve on nonprofit boards. I know what it's like to try and get money. But if you will come to us and talk about really what's going on and 
Let's talk about what outcomes you want and then come back if it's six months, if it's two years, and sort of say, this was our bet, we did the best we could, but this is what happened. We are right there with you. And, and uh, you know, our grantees, they've been grantees for years. And, and um, so we're, we're, and we've also been very careful letting our grantees know that we are shutting down. And no one's gotten less than a three-year grant um, to make sure that the cliff that will come um, isn't going to be... The drop won't be too significant. It's a slope, not a cliff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, slope, yes. And yeah. Julie, did you have some comments? And then I think we'll turn it open to the uh, audience. But. Yeah, well, on, on, I guess on the topic of, um, of implementation, you know, I think what we're talking about is, you know, staying power and realizing that, you know, you need to see things through to completion. And, and you know, it is a challenge because foundations and Certainly, if you're in the science world, the federal grant making scene, it's all one year, you know, NSF. Let's start a great, you know, send us a proposal. It has to be a brand new idea, something that's never been done before, and here's the money for a year. <laughs> and, and, and that's how it is. I mean, in education, and many of you probably um, know that. Uh, and, and one of the things that that's meant for foundations, I think, um, you know, foundations are bolstering, you know, a, a lot of society or, or working to fulfill a lot of societal needs that, you know, most of us in this room probably would agree that society and the government should be fulfilling, mm -hmm. um, but does not in our country. And so um, I know our foundation, over time, what that's meant is that more and more our big interest areas, we're doing more policy work because um, we, and, and sometimes, you know, at the expense of direct service work and say, you know, instead of working to fund um, equipment in the child care centers, we are funding, you know, what can we get the state to do to provide universal preschool? And, um, and I, I don't really have a comment on that except to say, I mean, that, that is, and, and oftentimes those plays end up to be the most rewarding, or and certainly in our environmental work, we've done a lot of public, what, what you'd call public-private partnerships of the foundation saying, okay, the state has passed some big bond issues for conservation and clean water. Are they going to be able to implement that? You know, what, like what's going to happen with that? And how can we throw some money at partnering with them to effectively spend the money that voters have decided needs to be spent? So um, I think those initiatives, I think funders should look at more of those opportunities because in the end, we're just fulfilling a tiny little gap. I mean, same with science funding. <clears throat> I mean, we have this whole picture of, you know, philanthropy should step up and fund science and it's you know we're a tiny little piece of the picture so you know i think you're going to see if the big funders continue to want to get policy change obviously you know we're not allowed to get involved in political advocacy um and the challenge will be you know running the day-to-day -day, the funding for the day-to-day -day of what you all do in, in the direct service realm and um, i don't have an answer to that it'll just be an ongoing interesting Attention, and I would say the newer and smaller donors, the people that are enjoying a great quality of life here and, um, you know, forget that they, you know, we need the teachers and, you know, the firemen and women and everyone that, you know, enables community to exist. 
everyone needs to invest in that. Right. So um, thank you for those comments. Let's open it up to the audience. There is a microphone that uh, will go. So if you just want to raise your hand or stand up, um, we can. And I think this looks like it must be Phil Kilbridge. Uh, if you want to give us your name and your organization from Nature so, Bridge, is that where you are from, uh, Phil? So to, to uh, did you take that picture? Stop it. Kids? Behave yourself, Dr. Um, two questions. Um, the first is reflecting on what you said, Lori, and, and there was a lot of conversation about the next generation of philanthropists. And then you were talking about listening. And I'm wondering, could you spotlight or, or, or shine a light on a couple of next generation philanthropists who are listening, um, who are trying to learn from their predecessors who've been champions in this field for a while, and think on that, and I'm gonna pick on you, Dr. Mm. Steve, in the meantime, okay. who's your philanthropic mentor? Ooh, uh, well, I could be really brief because we really wanna hear from these wonderful women because remember, they give because they care and I just care about the taxes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um, <laughs> and of course, I'm going to reference now another woman who is my mother, um, who, uh, you know, we had the advantage of an extremely, well, having extremely well-educated family just due to the issues of, you know, race in our country at that time, and perhaps now, I won't go into that, certainly when I grew up, the ability to turn that education into economics was zero. Uh, you know, my mother was a math professor who worked as a secretary. But it was always about giving, and it was always about um, giving, you know, either, I mean, she worked um, for under, with underprivileged kids to get them to go to college, a four-year college. In fact, my philanthropy now, or our family philanthropy now, is centered around, for example, scholarships for uh, kids from those same communities to go to four-year college. And we, you know, I have kids, but I've been putting somebody through college for years now. Uh, in her name, and that was always the notion that we could always do something. Um, you give a little bit of money, you could give a lot of time, you can do something. So I would say it's my mother. Yeah. Phil, I don't have a good answer for you, and I'm embarrassed to have to acknowledge that in front of all these people. Uh, you know, I would say that I get a lot of input from our young staff. We've got that barbell staff uh, issue of a lot of, you know, 30, 40-year-olds, and once they understand their role, um, which is to listen and support people in the field or work, as, as Julie said, I mean, we do a lot of sort of systems work. Um, going to conferences and hearing what people have to say there is something, but I don't have a, a cadre of younger... I'm not, I don't want to pick on the age thing as much as I want to pick on the new-to-philanthropy um, concern that I have, and um, quite honestly, I think some. This is <laughs> that's being recorded. Um, <laughs> some of the newer philanthropists are not at all interested in listening or learning. I mean, they they've just it, it's their mindset. And again, some of them are doing great work, and I think having new ideas and sort of pushing the envelope and challenging. Those of us that have done this for 20, 30, 40 years is good. Um, but, but it has to be a dialogue back and forth, and I'm not sure where that happens, really. Giving Pledge might be a good opportunity there because that's a lot of some of the newer, newer funds, funders. Um, but I would love you know, suggestions and um, 
if people say you should be talking to these people, that would be great. Again, we're we're you know I'm done in 2020, so I'm I'm just trying to keep my head above water to get it done. Um, so anyway, yeah. do you have Julia sissy well, ideas? Of, yeah. Well, it's funny you said you were embarrassed to say you can't think of a of a philanthropy or philanthropist that you would say, oh, you know that, but that's not that they don't exist. I think it's more, I, I, I can't yeah. think of someone that comes to mind either. You know, I will say, I, I think it's a really interesting time for those of us that have been in philanthropy mm-hmm. for a long time. And, and I have been spending time with, with, um, with, as I'm sure some of my colleagues here have with some of the, the newer entrants that are contemplating what to do. And I mean, the beauty of it is a, a foundation like ours, we have so much data and information. I mean, we have, we could tell you everything that's going on in the entire global ocean, you know, based on the amount of consultant studies we've amassed to guide our strategies. And I'm just like, here, you know, great. Can't wait to hear your, your ideas. Cause we have a boatload of, of, of data here. Um, you know, I do say, I mean, I, I, I do feel there's a, there's, um, you know, there's always such a tendency to want to do something new, mm-hmm. you know, it, and, and, and our generation philanthropy does this too. It's like, oh, we need to fill the gaps. And, and, and I, I really have a problem with that. You know, we all can agree, for example, when it comes to ocean conservation, the world agrees on the basic big issues, you know, overfishing, climate change, you know, it's the same things you name on one hand. <laughs> The intervent there are only so many interventions. So, you know, pick what you know, what appeals to you or who where maybe the group that you think's doing the best work or the best strategy. I mean, everyone's gonna have a different lens on it, which is fine. Um, but the, the sort of fill the gap thing bothers me and uh, it's you know, there's no silver bullet. So I'd agree with I'd agree with Lori. There there can tend to be that attitude which um you know is not is is not helpful because that's not how the world works great can i say one other thing yes i get i i do get a lot of um requests for um meeting and information about what what how to shut down a foundation what a limited life foundation should look like and and there's a lot of a lot of interest um, and it's growing rapidly about having limited life foundations. So starting and saying, okay, it's a 10-year horizon, or it's hopefully not less than that, because that's tough. Um, but I think that to the degree that um, people are interested in hearing about that, that's where I probably spend more of my time and answer more calls. If someone wants specific about education or environment work, they talk to our program teams. Um, and so I think that that's, and, and there are lessons, we, you know, we, we're, we're trying to share as much as we can. We, we haven't been, um, there's more to be done. But I think this even, and I, and I am one who believes that limited life is great. I also think perpetual foundations have a role, so I'm not tipping the scales one way or another. Um, but I think for the perpetual foundations, some of the things that we're learning and sharing would be helpful to them as they exit major initiatives. You see this all the time where, you know, a new president of the foundation comes in or a new program director comes in and they've been doing this for X number of years and the field and the organizations are dependent on them and then, you know, 
well, you know, we have a new strategic plan, we're not doing that anymore. I mean, talk about harm to the field and harm to the people that are relying on the services in the field is enormous. So, you know, I think that that's where I spend most of my time. And it's, again, it's, it's not necessarily an age thing. It's more about people that are trying to figure out philanthropy. Yeah, philanthropy, yep. So a question here. Hello, thank you so much. It's so great to hear from you all about the multi-generation and your, your wisdom, so thank you. Um, I want to make a plug for a news br brief that really blew my mind when Patagonia said they were taking their entire tax cut and putting it into climate mm -hmm. initiatives. I, just some of those um, role models, you know, you know, to me, was really impressive. So my question for you is systemic change. So much of the issues are the money flow. And, and a long time ago, I decided campaign finance, money in politics, that's so important. But when I've spoken with different foundations, they'll often say, like, that's not their area. So I'd love to hear from each of you on some of the more, like, huge policy issues that could affect systemic change, even short-term nature of capitalism, you know, and how that affects philanthropy. Is that, is that a question that I can ask you? Is that, clear, is that a clear question? It's basically, how do you feel about taking your money from your different areas and dealing with these like huge systemic issues? Okay, um, is that clear or do we need more clarification? I mean, I, I, mean, I could say, you know, our foundation, I mean, and Steve, you could, you're right there around the table with I me. Am. So, you know, we do talk about um, we talk about those issues, and some foundations are working on, uh, you know, more, you know, like really, really big systemic mm -hmm. issues. At our foundation, um, trying to think of, trying to think of an example. I mean, uh, you know, we tend to not get at the, you know, the level of, you know. What's the future of capitalism? I mean, for our foundation, that probably wouldn't go over too well. But, <laughs> but, but you know, when it comes to things like you know our global climate work, you know, what are the financing mechanisms? You know, what what what's the whole future of you know pricing carbon and car I mean, those are big systemic questions. Maybe not as you know, maybe not as big as what you're talking about. I don't know, Steve. Well, and I, I guess what I comes think, to your mind? When well, you what comes to my that? mind is two things. One is the notion that the bigger these things are, the more there's a need for foundations and other philanthropists with resources to collaborate. Yeah, we really try to put together groups and to give up some of that control in order to gain larger impact. So right. to say that even the Packer Foundation, which has you know, significant resources and they're, they're, they're used in a significant way, is not, cannot alone do a lot of these things. So I think about things, for example, we've, we're concerned about the value of, or the, uh, the view of science and the, the value of sci scientific information and sort of truth and data. As Julie said, she's a right. data nerd, so am I. So we think that decision-making ought to be driven by data as opposed to by, you know, social media and internet um, fake news. opinions. Fake. All right. She said it, I didn't. Fake science. Fake. I'm the moderator. I can't say that. She can. Okay. She's the panelist. But, but, but changing those kind of attitudes 
um, throughout the country or even more globally is a bigger issue. And I think those are the kinds of things that we look at who are the others in the field that can make that kind of impact. So Yeah, yeah. in that case, we're actually launching uh, an initiative with all the big science professional associations, AAAS, American Geophysical Union, the American Chemical Society, all of those crowd who are always, you know, worrying and hand-wringing over the future of science and science funding and does America value science and um, with some other funders putting a bunch of money into a, a, a professionally run campaign with actually paid, you know, Paid advertising, not your, you know, PSA at 1 a.m., which is the usual nonprofit, <laughs> nonprofit realm. So look for that. The campaign for science. We're really excited about it. We're just getting that launched. Um, yeah, I'd like to throw out some some thoughts um, as far as some priorities for our community, and immediately comes to mind. First of all, we have. Uh, an aging community that uh, we have been told again and again that people are living longer, healthier, and want to be productive. And so many of our individuals from 50 and over, uh, many of their jobs have, have have turned obsolete. And so they become jobless. And the companies, corporations that had those jobs are not providing training in another position. And as a result of that, and this is documented, Stanford, I believe, has a longevity department now. As a result of that, an individual becomes a, a sense of, uh, loses their sense of values. And what happens? they begin to spiral down. And suddenly we have a mental health problem. And I think that's something that we really have to be very close attention to and perhaps challenge some of these corporations that are doing exactly that, not providing a substitute position or not giving a job training program, perhaps that won't benefit their company, but they respect the fact that this individual's job became obsolete because there's a robot that now takes over. So I think that's an area that really uh, needs some investigating and some prioritizing. Uh, Another has to do, we all know this, housing. How are we going to get people off the street and into an appropriate housing situation? And those individuals taking a look at their, um, their profile Many of them are in a difficult mental state, whether it's from just despair or whether it's drugs, whatever. How are we going to get them into housing environments where they have medical services that are close by? And I don't mean a mile away, I mean close by. So that they feel some sense of, of belonging and they can be, feel a sense of being more productive. Following along with that, the job development, the housing, and the health. And finally, and but not, not the least, is education. What are we doing in our community that will assure, really assure, 
that all young people and older have an opportunity to be educated so that they can feel a sense of value for themselves and they can go out to the community and apply for a position that they know they at least have an opportunity uh, to be given that position. So these are, these are very key. They're not the environment. They're not um, the, um, some of the other priorities that you're talking about, but they're so basic. And we have them on our platter right now, and we hear about them every single day in the newspaper. So what, are we going to all focus on that? And can we make a difference? Because really the, the, the issue is now. It's, it's one of the reasons that I take this, this um, position of trying to implement uh, rather than wait. Mayor Breed has, you know, that's her agenda, is a house, a house, uh, homelessness. So what are we going to do to enable her to be successful because when she's successful, the community will be successful, and we'll have a much stronger uh, environment here. Thank you, Sissy. Um, and the time is now, and that is a call to action for all of us, obviously, to get engaged, remain engaged, and, and go forth and do good works. Um, unfortunately, the time is also now for us to end our session, and I'd like to make one observation as we close. Um, that is that philanthropy is all about giving, and this morning has been a real gift, uh, gift from all of you. So I want to express my gratitude, uh, both for you being here and taking the time and energy. Uh, I know you've come from all over the Bay Area to be here. I know the traffic. I know what that involves. Um, for what you do, uh, gratitude for that, but also gratitude for who you are. Um, as I know each of you, I know that you are uh, people with great hearts, great sense of um, caring for others, and uh, I must say that that gives me great, Lori, great optimism uh, <laughs> that uh, we also have a great future. So thank you very much. I'm going to invite Rick Happy back up to close the session. Thanks. I want to say thank you to all of you for coming. A special thanks to Julie, Lori, and Sissy. And Dr. Steve Lockhart, you are the best. Thank you for putting this together and, and leading our panel. We really appreciate it. I want to thank our partners at the Commonwealth Club and Candid West. And I'd now like to um, ask Gloria Duffy, the CEO and president of the Commonwealth Club, to close our meeting. Thank you so much, Rick. So we are so pleased to have had you here at the Commonwealth Club. And... Um, I will just tell you that all three of the women on this stage have played a very important role in the Commonwealth Club, and in particular in this beautiful building where every day now we're able to have dialogues and important issues like this. Sissy Swig, your ideas and your commitment in the community are so important, and she's been a longtime member and supporter and supporter of this project. Lori and the Bechtel Foundation and the Packard Foundation were, in fact, the early money that was like yeast for this project here at the Commonwealth Club. 115 years in rented space, serving the community, and finally the Commonwealth Club was able to build a home, a home for ideas for the community to come and discuss issues. Uh, due to very early investments, including a program-related investment from the Packard Foundation, generous support at the beginning and at the end of the project by the Bechtel 
Bechtel Foundation, and we are so grateful for providing this uh, venue for all of us to use at the Commonwealth Club. I've had the privilege of serving across many sectors in society, business, government, nonprofits, and foundations, five different foundations, actually, uh, twice as a CEO or a staff member and three times as a chair or a board member of a foundation board. I can't stress enough from that perspective the impact that philanthropy can have. There is no social issue in this country on which, despite the despair of the present moment, in which we would be, at, we, have, we would have made the social progress that we have made without philanthropy. Philanthropy has been fundamental to all of our progress in education, civil rights, the environment, uh, and even some areas that you might not think of. Uh, so I just want to close by saying how impactful uh, philanthropy is and can be. You have to combine the wisdom and the expertise with the insight and the innovative ideas, as all of your philanthropies do. But I'm going to end with one example with which I personally had um, uh, involvement. The Carnegie Corporation of New York in 1991 became concerned about the demise of the Soviet Union and the possible spread of all of the thousands of nuclear weapons in the former Soviet Union to other countries, to terrorist groups, to insurgent uh, states uh, and uh, bad actors around the world. They drew together scholars uh, at Stanford and Harvard who came up with an idea about what to do about this problem. They funded this work. They funded the strategic thinking, which then became a government program, the Nunn-Luger program, through the involvement of two senators, and provided billions of dollars, uh, by the, allowed the United States to then put its funds from our Defense Department into dismantling nuclear weapons in the former Soviet Union, which ended up getting rid of about 7,000 nuclear weapons, of loose nukes in the states of the former Soviet Union. It all started with David Hamburg and the Carnegie Corporation of New York, and thinking about this problem and bringing in the proper expertise and figuring out how creatively to try to solve this global problem. So never doubt what philanthropy can do at home, nearby, far away, globally, you, what you do is fundamental to all social progress. So thank you. Thank you to CCS. Thank you to Candid West for providing this terrific compendium of information, helping us to understand the field better. Thank you for all of what you do and what you all do. And as we always say at the Commonwealth Club, now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. <laughs> Thank you, Gloria. Great to see you. Nice to see you.